0: Yes, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Bio2040, where we speak with thought leaders and experienced researchers, entrepreneurs, investors to uncover the biggest opportunities in the biotech space. And I'm very excited today to have Sam Lee with me. Sam Lee is a very experienced veteran of the uh, chemistry, pharma, health tech, uh, biotech space. And uh, I'm very excited to have you here, Sam. Good day. Good day.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: Awesome. Sam, why don't we start off by you giving us a little bit of your background experiences, sort of what you've been doing in your career? Sure. I'll start from the
1: beginning. I'm a Canadian. I got my PhD in chemistry, polymer chemistry, from the University of Toronto. And my first job was as a research scientist at DuPont. So that was where I started in the division of packaging and industrial polymers. So anything that's plastic. And I did that for three years, and then I had the pleasure or opportunity to move into the business development side. And when I did that, I saw much more of the company, specifically the life science division, which they called the life sciences enterprise that had DuPont Pharma, as well as something they called bio-based materials. They started to make through synthetic biology, which it wasn't called that at the time, fermentation to make a bio-based chemical that ended up being used to make some fibers. So so I found that very interesting. And, and as a result of that, I quit the company and decided to get into life sciences. The first job I found in that direction was actually in a biopharmaceutical company. It was called MPS Pharmaceuticals, which is based in the US and, and Toronto, which was a company that ended up developing two medicines that are on the market today. Then I went and worked with a Cardiologist to start help start his biopharmaceutical company with a medicine he invented for cardiovascular did that for a bit and then I joined a, a generic pharmaceutical company. this is the generic pharmaceutical companies are companies that make medicines after they uh, expire the patents have expired and this is called Dr. Eddie's Laboratories, one of the largest ones in the world. That was based in India, but I spent the next eight years working out of uh, their U.S. office. So it was really quite a, an interesting range of experiences. And in that process, I just before I ended up back up in Canada, I worked with, I became the, a founding partner with a venture firm called SOSV that set up an accelerator for life science companies in New York called IndieBio, New York. I spent a little bit of time just before the pandemic started to, to get that going. Because it was uh, investing in uh, life science startups, uh, particularly where synthetic biology was a a field that they were interested in. So I've had an interesting career. I'm back in Toronto right now. I'm actually uh, working for BioNTech, which is the company that invented the first COVID mRNA vaccine. And uh, and that's where I am. But I have the pleasure of meeting you, Flavio, and continuing this conversation in my interest in, in synthetic biology.
0: Yeah, th- th- thanks Sam. thanks for the introduction. So, I think at this point everybody knows Biontech which produced these uh, wonderful vaccines that have prevented probably millions of deaths at this point. So that's a I mean that's an exciting point we could probably spend an entire episode just talking about that and then also IndieBio the I've been familiar with it's it's a very interesting sort of incubator. I was more familiar with the one in, in San Francisco. I think maybe that was the first one. And and so you've you've really uh, had a very interesting and illustrious career across the whole spectrum. I think that's also why our conversation today is going to be uh, really interesting, because you can draw from all these different aspects and experiences. So I, I think maybe for people to sort of get situated, would it would it make sense to a little bit talk about, you know, today we, we have this field called synthetic biology, but, and as you said uh, in your introductions, it wasn't even called like that a, a while ago. So does it make sense for us to go and give somewhat of a history, you know, where did it start and sort of? Where are we today? Sure.
1: sure. So uh, what, where I my experience, I did not include this when I was giving my introduction, is that I did have an opportunity 10 years ago, back in 2010 to 2011, to meet the CEO of a pharmaceutical company, and he contracted me to do some work for him and his family office to look for investments for him. And and I was so grateful for that opportunity. He must have seen in me my varied background that I could uh, put a lot of things together, my understanding and experience in life sciences, but also grounded in my original background at DuPont. And so this was to look at things in sustainability and energy, And this was to look for startups that he could invest in or or, or new technologies that him and his family office could invest in. This was just a side job. I had a regular day job. This was something I could do at at nights and weekends. So, of course, when you get an opportunity like that, you you do it. And and we started looking at solar energy, for example, at green tech of of various types. And then he came to me and said, why don't you look into synthetic biology? And, And this was 2011. And I thought, what does that mean? And, and that's where I started to learn about this space and investigate it. I, I did that by looking at high-impact journals. And I also did that because uh, of, we're looking at startups, I started looking at patents. And, and through that search, that's where I started to see the first iteration or first generation of companies, which I felt were what one could call synthetic biology companies. So, so just to be clear, you know, it's a big space. It, it certainly is now, but even back then you could define it by, by just about many different criteria. We, I broadly categorized it in two broad buckets. One of them would be therapeutics and the other would be non-therapeutics. And, and most of the real world applications as to where one could go, one could arguably say that there were products in that space in the therapeutic area already. So I looked at the non-therapeutic areas, which is a huge space. But very quickly, I narrowed down on a number of companies that were being funded at the time, which were getting some quite, quite far along with various products. And it turned out that these were, they would call them building block chemicals or petrochemicals. And that's when I stumbled upon this connection that these were products that they were developing that were connected to products that otherwise could be made from crude oil. And, and so that was, appeared to be the first idea that drove the, the, the first generation of companies to, to make products as as substitutes or, or bio-based substitutes to petrochemicals.
0: So was that at the time, was, was the idea there to fight climate change? Was more of a cost driver? We could make it cheaper? What were sort of the, what was the idea in that first sort of wave of synthetic biology in the sustainability area? Right. It, it's, it's a good question. And, and that's when it, at that point in my
1: life and my career, I, I would have that moment where when I look back, it all makes sense and it all comes back together. Because uh, by then I had already left uh, DuPont many years ago. And at the time I was at DuPont and in business development, there was a big initiative in the DuPont Life Sciences Enterprise. They called it BioBased Materials. And for all us scientists who were in the traditional chemistry area, we felt I felt kind of left out because all the spotlight and, and, and career opportunities were going to these biologists. And what they were doing was taking fermentation to make a certain compound. It was called one, three-propane diol. It's basically for, for the organic chemistry side propane with with the two alcohol groups on on either end, and that would be the feedstock for polyester. And as I learned the business premise as to why they wanted to do this, well, polyester has been around for a long time. And when, when in the early days, when polyester was first developed, DuPont had figured out a whole range of different types of polyesters you could make. One of the best polyesters that they could make was actually based on using this 1,3 propane diol. The reason they never chose that, and they ended up using the ethane version of it, the two carbon one is is because that was the one that was readily available from crude oil as a feedstock that was much cheaper and and now they found that in order to provide a competitive product let, let's make one three propane dial we have a way to do that through fermentation and we could make a new polyester fiber that would be much more elastic, much more durable, much stronger and so on and and that was what drove it so basically the story other than that you had a better performing fabric was that the cost point became accessible because of synthetic biology which wasn't called synthetic biology at the time it was it was just basically a fermentation technology that they through engineering e coli was what they started with so that was the connection and and then that was back in 1999 2000 when when that product was being developed and and it is, it is on the market. In 2011, I began to see that there was a whole bunch of other products made by other companies with that same premise, that there were a lot of products that they, these would be uh, petrochemicals, chemicals that are two, three, four carbons in size that would be produced at petrochemical refineries. And they would be the feedstock to go into other materials downstream, mostly plastic, but but also a lot of other materials. And this first generation of bio-based materials uh, that were, were coming out, these synthetic, bi- so-called synthetic biology companies, were basically making that as a route, alter- as an alternative from petrochemicals. So, part of the storyline was to say this is a sustainable material because they come from fermentation, which is basically from sugar rather than petrochemicals.
0: So, so in this uh, scenario, we we're essentially you know harvesting some kind of sugar right, that we have is grown in some field, maybe sugarcane or some other source of carbon, which then the net CO2 would be zero, right? Versus if we, obviously, if we take petrochemicals, these products are then produced, consumed, then ultimately, oftentimes, either end up in, in waste dumps or, or burned, which then adds a CO2 to the atmosphere. Is that the correct way to think about it? That, that's sort of uh, how they expressed it.
1: And, and that they, there, there was an environmental element to this, but the the, the interesting thing was here is where the price of oil comes in. And and this was remember this is thinking that's ten years ten years old now, and so where it is today and the and the and the storyline and and the business case are different. But it's good to know the past. So this is two thousand eleven. We just had the global financial crisis in two thousand and eight, and and there was a little. If you just look at the the price of oil between through the nineteen eighties nineteen nineties, it's been relatively flat let in u s dollars let's say about forty fifty dollars a barrel, and then it started to go up uh, and up in a uh, sixty seventy eighty ninety over a hundred dollars a barrel. We had the global financial crisis there was a little blip went down a bit, but it went back up, so it was at an all time high and so oil as a feedstock into petrochemical refiners is very high. oil itself was uh, the burning of it is 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 contributing carbon dioxide and and so, both the price as well as the environmental premise was was something that, uh, in the first generation of thinking about this problem, those were were undesirable elements. And what's going on then is okay, you've got a petrochemical refinery that that's that's being the the source of of these building block chemicals that you need to. What if we actually uh, use the bio based source? So instead of using uh, crude oil, let's just say it turns out to be corn, which provides the glucose. To do fermentation to make a bunch of materials. It could be propane diol, it could be succinic acid, it could be isobutanol, butane diol. So these were the types of materials that those first generation of companies made. They also th- th- thought of making uh, biofuel because that, that, that's pretty, there's a broad range of different uh, oils you could make from that. So that's what they were doing. And that was possible also because the price of oil was high. So you had this tailwind in the business case. You know, tailwinds are are, are forces which help drive your company or in business model. But it's not a tailwind that's sustainable. If you take that away, a big part of your business case sort of falls apart. But at the time, that tailwind was the high price of oil, and 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 then there was subsequently in the U.S. at least there was a lot of government incentives provided for for green chemistries. That at that time was the Obama administration that provided this. And those were funds that would go into helping the the green chemicals industry, as as one may call it, evolve and grow. So so that was what constituted the first generation of companies. They they received a lot of investment, and at the same time, they also ended up getting products that were were being developed and and hoping to commercialize.
0: So so what happened with these companies? I mean, uh, both the biofuels, I know. If I remember correctly, there was a big hype back then, but sort of now it doesn't seem to have gotten uh, as much traction as, as as it could have. I, th- I think in Brazil, it's, it's used for example as a gasoline replacement, but other than that, it hasn't made these these broad impact that maybe some people were wishing for. So, what what did what what happened with biofuels and what happened with these other uses that you were sort of touching on? And in, in where are we today? Is this now the price of oil has, has gone back up? Is this Changing the game again, or or sir, maybe if you can touch on the unit economics a bit more in detail, that could also be interesting.
1: Sure. Okay. So so biofuels is one segment. These building block uh, chemicals is, is another segment. If we just look at biofuels as as a segment itself, it it just basically comes down to price. We've got a lot of, in terms of the actual value chain or supply chain of how these things are are made. You you, you do need to grow the crops that provide the glucose, whether that's corn. Or, or sugar beet or, or a sugar cane, um, you, you have that part, you have to harvest that, you have to bring it into a, a location to concentrate it, that has to go into a fermenter. And so when you compare that with the existing infrastructure, infrastructure that exists for, with, with, with fuel itself, it, it just is not sustainable unless the price of fuel was extremely high and you got government subsidies. Once government subsidies go away, which basically happened as as the after effects of of the global financial crisis wore away, that was one leg that got pulled away. The other was that we never expected that shale uh, oil and the whole fracking technology uh, came into play and and it became a, a major source of cheap oil as well. So, at the price of oil by around 2015 2016 had dropped considerably because of this big supply of, of cheap oil that was enabled by. Another interesting technology, fracking technology that, that brought it down. So that that whole aspect of, of biofuels was was had basically had its, its legs kicked out of out of it and became unsustainable. It, it, there, there is a bit still in existence, um, and I wouldn't call it biofuels, it could be ethanol, which is which is added, but that's the that's the remnant of of what that part of the industry is. The the other part is these bio-based chemicals. And it suffered the same effects because uh, your feedstock is, is very high priced uh, oil at the time, which no longer is the case. The other is the so that's the that's the the input side of it, the, 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 what, what, what your costs are. The output is or, or is, is what your market is. So if it's if it's going into plastic, let's say it's, it's polyester. Or there has to be a a market that's large enough to be able to to make your unit economics work. So as I indicated, propane dial was was one of the first ones, and it's still a product that that is still made, and it's integrated in into into the pro into the product supply chain. So so that that's still sustainable it's it's not an industry in itself it's it's a product that that's made in-house by by the company that used to be called DuPont as as a product succinic acid was was one of the other ones that was a product that was made by synthetic biology it, it they first started by fermentation of e coli and then also by ferment they they switched to a yeast-based fermentation for higher yield but still the the price could not go down uh, enough and at most you needed about forty thousand metric tons to even start to get there in unit economics, but you, and you would need to have much higher levels. So the problem there is that the market demand, the, in, the the market size is not high enough. So and that was the case of of a lot of these these other uh, products like like butane dial. So that's when, when, when your input and output side. Uh, are are the, the economics don't work out? Basically, the, the, those companies don't are, are not really that viable.
0: Right, right. I I, I think at this point it, it might be interesting also for people to realize a little bit more like where these petrochemicals are used. And we talked about biofuels, but in plastics, but there are other areas as well. Could you? give us a, a quick overview of like, what are the main, other from all the transport and heating, which is, you know, what people probably most associated with oil and, and gas also, where else are, are sort of petrochemicals used? Well, actually, predominantly, it, it, it is plastics.
1: And this is where th- that was the, the first generation, I would call of synthetic biology companies is that they are making the the building blocks for plastics, mostly polyesters. and polyesters are biodegradable, so if it actually breaks down, you you will have a some sort of closed, hopefully sustainable supply system and 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 degradation of of those plastics. The uh, problem is that you're treating the, these first generation of 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 companies were treating their products as commodities. And if one looks at it now uh, today, ten years later, price of oil is high again. But the, the, the industry and, and the world has changed. Um, we are no longer, I feel, working in a globalized world where uh, products can be shipped anywhere around the world. We are going to be in markets that are more closed. And therefore, the production that you make of, of any material, plastics, for example, and you'd want these plastics to be recyclable or, or degradable, they would serve a local market. And so the companies that I see uh, evolving today, never mind synthetic biology for a moment, these companies make materials that are degradable for disposable uh, wrappers, disposable cutlery, and so on, as a a very simple example. They serve very, very local markets. And if that's the case, if we go into bio-based materials, what one would make are a whole new, what I would think is, as an idea, I'm not saying that I have the right answer here, where I think things are going, is that you would have to create a whole new supply chain based on a whole new set of materials. So right now, what are the kinds of plastics that exist? There's polyethylene, um, polyester, which is, there's many types of polyester, but polyethylene uh, terephthalate is, is, or PET, is is the most common type of polyester. You would look at different types of poly and and you would continue to do that and basically you're developing a whole new set of materials to replace the, the the plastics that are in existence today. That's that's one way to do it. Another or second generation is that what what are what are the other materials that you could make? Another set would be surfactants. So these are more complex uh, compounds. They originally uh, come from, they don't actually come from, some of them may come from petrochemicals. Most of them come from other sources and in- including agricultural, uh, sup- the agricultural supply chain. This is becoming of interest and they're used in soaps and detergents, which, which is a, a, a niche uh, in itself. Another is, is to make things like, I, I, one area I like and have been watching for a long time is palm oil. Because uh, palm oil is used in a, not just in a whole lot of foods, but in a whole lot of other consumer products, cosmetics. And they all come from palm trees, which really come from mostly Indonesia. And, and that comes at an incredible environmental cost. So where we are with generation Tem- two or generation three I, of I synthetic just- biology is to make a lot more complex systems rather than just building block uh, our petrochemical like compounds.
0: Yeah, so there's a whole new business sort of area really propping up, right? there's companies like like Ginkgo Bioworks and and many others Amaris that are working on sort of creating n- sort of sometimes they're uh, making less toxic or they're using less toxic ways to make certain industrial compounds that are that are needed. Other times they're making new compounds, right? So one example is the flavors and fragrances industry, for example, vanillin, I think is a classic example. That's the sort of the molecule that gives vanilla, it's sort of vanilla taste. And it's kind of expensive to grow, it only grows in certain regions of the world, for example, French Polynesia, and then it needs to be sourced and treated and and all that, and at the the end, the, the amount of work that goes into making the vanilla needed is, is sort of quite great compared to as if you can have a fermentation based system that makes the exact compound you need. Uh, some people also call that precision fermentation. Then potentially you might have a much more sustainable and also more predictable a uh, supply chain, right? Maybe I don't know. You have thoughts on that, where you know the plants and crops can be subject. Uh, both to pests, you know, climate disaster, and now as we're learning, also geopolitics starts playing a role, right? So instead of having to be dependent on a certain molecule being able to be sourced only from a certain region in the world, we may want to have our countries around the world may want to have, uh, as you were alluding to earlier, their own sort of biomanufacturing hubs where they can make the desired compounds right, kind of where they need it, and sort of also be less dependent on both climate pests and geopolitical perturbations. Is that something you also see that way or? That's right.
1: So uh, Amaris is is, is a very good example of that. That was one of the very first uh, synthetic biology companies out in California back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s that got founded. And it's been an interesting company to observe because they've been trying to find the right business model for them to stick. And a very good example of that, that was one of the very first, uh, the very first iteration of the company was to create biofuels. They had a way uh, to, to, there was a, to make uh, a different fatty acids. Which uh, are, would would therefore be oil that turned out not to be sustainable for for reasons which which I mentioned it's it's, it's too high cost uh, compared to what you could actually uh, purchase as, as 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 regular fuel from petrochemical sources and then they started to pivot in a number of different ways one was in pharma ingredients another was like you said in in, in fragrances these these would be fine chemicals each one of those uh, it could be an industry it is an industry in itself. And so this is where uh, one way I thought about it was, let's just, let, let's just look at the evolution of the chemical industry, which began long before the Industrial Revolution. You had companies that started making fine chemicals, which went into pharmace- pharmaceutical uh, ingredients. You had from that company, these were all based in, in Germany and Switzerland, companies that went into specialized in flavors and fragrances. You had companies that ended up going into dyes and pigments. And, and so all of those industries are still, I would have thought, uh, viable as, as approaches to the first generation and second generation of, of synthetic biology companies. Instead of using traditional chemical routes, most of which comes through petrochemicals, go through a synthetic biology route. And, and, and we, we ended up, see, we, we, we've been seeing that. But now we, we're starting to see more advanced versions of that. So Amiris, I think, never ended up catching on because they never caught the right business model. So I, the way I would position it is that generation one are these um, building block industrial chemicals that that these companies attempted to to do. And their failure is that those are co- your co- those are commodities and you've positioned them competing against petrochemicals. V- version one point one, I would say, is to is to start to produce these specialty chemicals and build a whole new supply chain. And and that's a possibility. If there's some entrepreneur out there that wants to have this vision of doing it, I think that's a very interesting premise. Version two is instead of using petrochemicals as, as as an input, why don't we consider some other carbon source, such as carbon dioxide or methane? And we're starting to see companies like that. Where your, your your feedstock is is not uh, a sugar, which is extremely expensive. You, you've got to go through the agricultural supply chain to secure that. But basically, hook your chemical your 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 company up to an industry that's supplying either carbon dioxide or methane, and and or or natural some form of natural gas. And we're starting to see that. And 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 that's driven by okay, if you have that input, what can the organism that you've engineered? Um, make that's that's high value so that's that's sort of another generation there are other companies that can make dyes most of these dyes again come from fine chemicals through a petrochemical route many of these dyes are not biodegradable they end up polluting riverways and and your 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 sewer systems with these intensely colored sometimes carcinogenic dyes and so there are companies that are thinking of can we look at dyes that are sourced from organisms uh, which are uh, not just therefore sustainable but also not so toxic and and that 's another uh, set of companies. Um, we have companies that that are are using synthetic biology to to make compounds that really are valuable so one of the ones I found that was very interesting was ways to make human milk oligosaccharides. These are sugars uh, found in human breast milk, and sugars in breast milk uh, are are unique to um, the, the, the mammal. So the what you find in, in humans is different from what you find in whales and what you find in, in, in marsupials and so on. And there were many companies that had a technology to engineer E. coli to make these. There's about many, over 200 of these human milk oligosaccharides. And why is the baby eating these things? And nature and evolution must have designed it in a certain way. And, and there have been studies to show if you're actually having breast milk with these human milk oligosaccharides there, you do have lower incidence of infection. You do have a better growth, improved brain development marginally. And so it would be best for infant formulas to to actually have these ingredients in them as well. But you can't make these; they're very complicated by chemical routes. You'd have to use an, uh, an, um, a, a a biological route. And there was a company in Germany that that figured it out. Two very brilliant brothers, Yenowine uh, Biotechnology, is what it's called. And and that's that's an example I love. As of, of citing as an example of a synthetic biology company that made a very useful, very high value product, and just a year ago they were acquired by by a major specialty chemical company for I think 400 million euro. So so hats off to them. That's that's a, that's a that's a win. That's that's a very good example of of of, a, of an application that that actually is very useful.
0: Yeah. So I, I love what you were describing, how like the version 1.0, is sort of these, these sort of building block chemicals, but really turns out that you're sort of too closely competing with petrochemicals and, and oil actually is an incredibly cheap material in, in compared to many other, for for the amount of thing the versatility that you can do and, and the amount of energy that's stored inside, right? So, so it's sort of very hard to compete with that. And then now we're sort of learning that you know, as, as, as I guess our tool becomes better, our tools become better Be in the synthetic biology field. The sequencing costs have come down. We have better assays. We have high throughput assays to test, you know, different uh, to really do cell engineering, cell lines and so on. And, and so we can start engineering more complex pathways. I think that's what you're talking about now to make more complex uh, molecules, oligosaccharides or or, or proteins that um, are larger proteins that also maybe have a uh, post-translational modifications and so on. So it's really a, a whole new field that's emerging now as both the wet lab and the dry lab have become better. There's a whole new field of things that are opening up. And I certainly love the, the example you just mentioned uh, with the human breast milk. I think uh, that would be a boon if, if these infant formula all had uh, these these sort of uh, healthier compounds, right? So yeah, I, I I think that's a very interesting way to to think about everything. So I mean, maybe for for people, we can get slightly technical here and sort of just explain a little bit more. You know, this synthetic biology we've talked about. How does it actually work? What what do people sort of how how do you go from an E. coli you find in nature to actually you know making the the compound?
1: okay so so there's many different ways to do it but i'll just cite the and that's why the the field is so broad and i'll just cite the industrial biochemicals that bio-based chemicals that that, that we started this conversation with where originally the upstream the feedstock is is sugar glucose and there's a number of pathways and and these are ones that are fundamental to to organisms as to how to they metabolize in this case sugar for energy and as i what i noticed is that when i looked at the patents the evolution or, or, or the timeline of, of what when these companies and when these things came out closely matched the, how far you are going down each of these pathways so the, the, the very first one is is this so-called glycolysis pathway which uh, takes sugar and and breaks it or builds it up into a phosphoenopyruvate and pyruvate, which which are energy sources that, that go on into other pathways within the organism and when you look at that, phosphoenopyruvate is is one that can be engineered further. By that, I mean the pathways as to where it goes to make succinic acid. And so that was one of the first approaches and early companies using technology based on engineering the organism to to take sugar. And as it goes through the the glycolysis pathway, it gets to phosphoenopyruvate, ends up making succinic acid. Now, if One uh, takes the glycolysis pathway further, it goes into a number of other pathways which are possible. And this concept of metabolic engineering is about how do you engineer the organism to steer the the direction of the pathway to maximize the yield while keeping the organism highly productive. So another direction it could go is, is this aromatic amino acid pathway. So after you go through the glycolysis pathway, if you steer it towards the aromatic amino acid pathway amino aromatic is basically means benzene type compounds and and where you go then may allow you to make benzene like compounds and and that's useful to make terephthalic acid which uh, is a building block for example for for polyester and so there was, there was uh, one or two companies that actually started doing that because they managed to, the professors that did that work managed to, to, to find an optimal metabolic engineered system to do that. Another direction you could go is, is after the glycolysis pathway, you could go towards the mevalonate pathway. And that gets interesting because you, it, it goes into a lot of other different products. You could make fatty acids from that. You could make one, three propane diol, which is the example I personally saw in Dupont fatty acids. Uh, th- those were, in fact, that's where Amiris is. their their expertise was the mevalonic pathway, and I think the professors originally came from UC Berkeley and and developed the the expertise in that to create a, a a system and a set of products that 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 developed that could be used to develop these fatty acids. And then, furthermore, after that, as you go further uh, downstream, you could end up. Uh, engineer a lot of other pathways t- towards. Th- they're called phosphates: geraniophosphate, phosphate, farnesyl phosphate, pyrophosphate, and and so on. And that leads to a whole range of more complex compounds. And and when you get that far down, you're starting to ma- make compounds that could go into flavor and drug precursors, flavors, and so on. So so it's it, that's the first generation of these industrial chemicals, and they're all driven by how you optimize that and they're all done in E. coli, eventually they, they will be switched to yeast because you, you get a more productive system. And, and that's one way to do it.
0: Okay, yeah. So so it seems like just to summarize sort of a, a bit more from a layman's perspective, you essentially have sugar, you know, coming from essentially, you know, either corn or, or sugar beet or some other type of plant. And then this sugar gets turned into various compounds via pathways, which are really just enzymes sort of modifying these these compounds from one step to the next. And you have these very complex kind of branches of, of pathways things can flow into. And then the idea is here, if I understood this correctly, is to sort of finding out the, the product you desire to make, sort of finding out chemically, where are you kind of close in the natural wild type sort of pathway. And then engineering, adding enzymes or modifying enzymes, and so on, to sort of steer the the flux, the metabolic flux, into the direction that you desire, and, and ideally have at the end an organism that you know sort of has a, a hijacked uh, pathway now making the the product that you want. And then you, there's a whole bunch of downstream processing that needs to happen after that. But but is that that's sort of the high level goal here? And then the synthetic biologists companies like. Amaris and, and ginkgo and others sort of have specialized in you know doing these metabolic engineering tasks. There's a whole bunch of high throughput screening going on, sequencing, understanding the natural pathways, and then testing various biological components. You know, swapping out promoters and enzymes, uh, and so on to sort of optimize uh, the yield and the titer that your your that your host can make, whether it's E. coli, yeast, or or other even more complex uh, hosts uh, like filamentous fungi and so on are starting to be to be used
1: yeah exactly you define that quite well that that's what's going
0: on and and it's there's
1: a lot of research ultimately to create an organism which you could use to to drive this now um one thing i think that's important is that many technologies cannot uh, produce a product on their own you need a lot of parallel technologies and i think one of the big problems is that this is taking place in an organism and you got to extract the product out of that. On the engineering side, I think a cell-free system is something that will will be needed in the future to support a a more efficient production. But but the steps you've described is exactly what's going on. In the case of human milk oligosaccharides, as I described, that was in fact finding the right enzyme and, and where the patents are concerned, It's whether you choose that enzyme from one organism and you patent that or an enzyme from another organism and you insert it into your your E. coli or ultimately a a yeast or something, another organism. That's where you get an intellectual property position and have the engineered organism produce your your human milk oligosaccharide that way. There are many different types of human milk oligosaccharides. Some are more complex than others. And of course, the more complex ones require more enzymes and you'd have to find the genes for that. And, and figure that out. And that's still a work in progress. It's, that's still very interesting.
0: You mentioned the cell-free systems. Can we dig into a little bit about that? What what are the main advantages and then maybe also current challenges with establishing cell-free systems to, to make compounds? Well,
1: quite uh, simply, it's it's because when you create the product, it's still in, in, in the cell. You've got to actually extract. There there are ways to do that. And, when the, and the, the simplest is is basically have a transporter that exports it out of the cell. And in that way, that's how you actually get a, a labeling of non-GMO, at least for food ingredients, for example. And, but the thing is, if it was not in the cell itself, then you don't have, for example, in E. coli, there may be the potential pyrogens. These are uh, toxins that could, if once you rupture the cell, could present a, a safety issue for human consumption and so on. So finding a cell-free system is is engineering a number of requisite enzymes, uh, whether they're in, immobilized onto beads or or done in other ways. There's many ways to do this. There's many different uh, approaches to it. A lot of people say, oh, there's people already doing it. But having a cell-free system to create proteins is different than having a cell-free system to create proteins uh, specialty carbohydrates or a cell-free system to make fatty acids. So there's a lot of opportunities there.
0: So I, I, I haven't thought about this very deeply. So just can you draw the line maybe between like classical, more chemical synthesis and then the cell-free system and then I guess the 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 bio the cell-based system? Where what are the clearest distinctions and and what is sort of need I guess I'm trying to figure out for the cell-free system. What is needed to, to make it work that's maybe challenging? Why hasn't it proliferated more?
1: Well, if we look at just the chemical side of it, and again, this is where my, my pharma background comes in useful, is that you can only create relatively simple chemical structures through synthesis. Now, those are still fairly expensive and, and time consuming to do because they're done in, in big chemical reactors and they're done in several sequential stages. And where that industry is going nowadays is to go through so-called continuous processing so that you're not cleaning out vessels, you're not transporting the uh, the products of, of reaction A plus B to C, and then you have another vessel C plus D plus E and so on to make F. You're just gonna run this through a, a number of, of, of columns and, and other uh, systems to ultimately put have the product made at the end of, end of that. So you can do that for relatively simple compounds, but when you start to make proteins when you start to make complex carbohydrates when you start to make a uh, uh, specialty fatty acids i think that's where pure synthetic chemistry is going to be a lot more costly and that's where you would want a biological system because enzymes can do that much more exquisitely they can do that the yield and and then the rate of reaction much faster and that's where you you'd, you'd want a, a biological system to do that now, right now, that takes place in cells because the cell has to produce the enzyme as well as any necessary cofactors to actually do that in a cell-free system. That's that's the the genius or, or the innovation that's required to liberate all of these processes from from a cellular system.
0: So, so just to understand with the with the enzymes required in the cell-free system, they would have probably still been made by a biological by a cell at some point. Then you you would you would sort of how do I imagine this? Is this a big soup of of different enzymes, and and then you add like your starting starting products uh, to it, or how how do how do I imagine this working?
1: Yeah, correct. So so that's many of these enzymes are are, are made through through a cell based system originally. So that's another opportunity in synthetic biology. Is is there a way to make enzymes more effectively, more efficiently, cost effectively? And there are companies that do that as well.
0: Okay, are there any self-free systems that are already sort of up and running today in in a large scale, or is it is this still in the earlier phases? It's early. It's early. So there's lots of opportunities there, um, and and I'm I'm stunned at how
1: quickly the the field is is evolving. So I went to I, I one of the jobs I had earlier was to actually look for for companies that had technologies like this, and I would go to certain conferences and and see who is actually presenting at the investor pitches, or see if it's interesting. And I would flag these companies, I would go after them as a corporate development kind of approach. And what surprises me is that about one year after I approach these companies, they're getting major rounds of financing from various investors, mm-hmm. uh, which shows how quickly they're, they're going. Because if you're running a startup company, you know how long it takes, but but these are getting into series A, or even series B, which is in the uh, millions or, or multi millions of, of, of funding, because they've actually developed some Proof of concept of their technology, and it could be something as simple as just finding one or two enzymes, being able to immobilize it on, onto some uh, column, and and doing some proof of concept. Doing that, so that's where that's where I see some of this. There there are there is maybe a handful or one or two companies that that are already doing this at scale, much longer. But these are very traditional companies. These are there's one very traditional company doing this, Novozymes. Uh, there's another that's that's newer. Uh, carbios uh, and so on so but i wouldn't say that they've by a long shot sewed up the market
0: okay so just to make sure that i uh sort of understand this uh correctly so in in the cell free system the uh, main advantage is that we're saving the downstream processing that we'd have to do in in the cell based system is that correct
1: Exactly. So cost and, and, and waste you, you, because the, the, yeah. you, you remove a source of a lot of the waste that, that ends
0: up. Uh, the whole biomass and all the, all the things the cell makes that we're not interested in, but it needs to survive. Like all of that is right. gone. Right. Because
1: usually in a fermentation, what happens is uh, you don't start making the product right away. You, mm-hmm. you start by uh, charging the reactor and then you have to build the biomass up so that uh, the cells are propagating and growing to a certain level. And then you transition the, the um, the uh, activity of the cell towards making whatever it is you, you want to make. So so there's a lag time. And then off, after that, if uh, even if it's excreting it, you still got to extract your product out of that right. soup.
0: Yeah. And and sometimes the, 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 the intermediary products could be toxic to cells and, and there's there's various ways. Uh, cells are very complex things, right? And, and so you have to sort of get it just right in many, many areas for this to work. And, and then I guess once you had a cell-free system, as you said, it seems like ultimately that would be a lot more efficient and you would have to deal with taxes probably than, than you would have to deal if you do a, cell, a cell-based system, right? Right. So like E. coli, phages is, is for example, a major issue. Mm. The other thing is there's a regulatory one.
1: If you're, you're going into mm. feed additives or whatever, there are certain countries that will not give you the right labeling if it's out of out of an E. coli system. So you would need a yeast system. So what I've seen is most companies, well, while they may have started with E. coli because that was their first organism. That they they actually optimize to make the product, they would eventually switch to yeast anyway at some point. And then the, the 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 other issue is you're still in an organism, you still have to extract it out, and and then what's dependent is all your engineering, downstream engineering to uh, actually clean, wash, polish, or whatever the, the the crude material into your final product.
0: Right. So, are cell-free systems sort of the the future? Is that the final? Is that the I don't know if the final frontier, but is that sort of the next frontier is 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 sort of do you see how do you see if we zoom out a little bit, where do you see sort of the synthetic biology space going? What are maybe some of the current major challenges and and maybe kind of where do you see also some opportunities?
1: Right. So a lot of enabling technologies would be important, and and that's where cell-free systems, I would call them enabling technologies to actually mm-hmm. help improve. The, uh, the efficiency, the cost efficiency, uh, as well as the yield efficiency of these systems, that's one space. I think the area, you mentioned Ginkgo Bioworks as, as as a company. There are a number of companies out there do this so-called early stage tools. Some people call it the, the pickaxes of the gold rush. Those fundamental tools, those companies, there are they are there. There's always room for more, but that's usually you see companies like that in the early stages of a new uh, segment of an industry. Another area that we haven't touched on this at all which is what I would call cultured proteins, which is mm. now we're going to the foods area. We, we've seen meat-free products. The first group of those would be um, alternatives to beef products. And, and that's really big in the United States and I, I'm seeing it worldwide. And, and that's, it's a different approach. We, we talk mostly about metabolic engineering, but those c- companies um, have looked at cell culture and s- using stem cells, for example. And so now we're looking at much more complex systems. And, and it's not simply metabolic engineering. It's it's now we're looking at cell-based growth. So they take stem cells out of muscles and use that to create a meat-like product. And there's the, some of the issues there are, first of all, isolating the stem cell. So you're basically bioprospecting. That's a simple way to describe that. And then the other is you've got to grow these things, which means there are Media, anyone who's worked in a lab growing cells, the media to grow the cells is an extremely expensive input or, or uh, reagent that you need to buy. So there are technologies, that's another enabling technology that you would need to, to, to bring the cost
0: down. Yes, the media seems to be the one of the main, or maybe the main bottleneck in in getting cultured meat to the masses. Definitely an area I've been very interested in and in following for for quite a while. Yeah. So, yeah, it seems like there's a lot of a lot of exciting things going on. We could probably spend uh, uh, another couple hours uh, talking about this, and maybe we will. But I think for today, we, we have gotten a very interesting overview, sort of a little bit of the background, the history, and sort of where some of the current challenges are. Cell free systems. Definitely an interesting sort of enabling tech. And uh, yeah, do you have any last sort of words, last thoughts uh, you'd like to share with us today?
1: Well, I've got a lot of thoughts, but I'll keep it to, to just two of them. One of them is that the opportunity to get into these new areas is, is just huge now. I mentioned that I, I at one point in my career, I was looking at venture capital and, and I did a stint in a Life Science Startup Accelerator. I don't think that that is the only way to do it now. And nowadays, you get startup hubs all over the world. And it, it, 10 years ago, I used to look at, at various methods of, of uh, like patent searches and looking at professors to find these opportunities. Now they could come from anywhere because technology has gotten to a point where it's it's hit and, and reached above critical mass. So I, I think that there's hopefully there's somebody listening here and would be inspired to be able to do this and and look at this uh, as I can do it. It's it's not something that oh, you, you have to be in Silicon Valley or in some hotspot in Switzerland somewhere to, to do this. The, the other is that based on what I saw, what we started this conversation about commodity chemicals, we're in a new industry now. And if you make a product, it's best not to think about it as, as a drop in place replacement for something that's already in existence. You're creating a whole new set of products. So don't bother to make a petrol based chemical, uh, a petroleum like chemical based on, 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 a, on a biological source to replace something that's already existed. Create a whole new uh, product. Like, like, like what we saw with cultured foods now.
0: Yeah, no, that I, I think I agree, and I and I think we could also uh, spend more time talking about the entrepreneurial opportunities and kind of maybe what skills um, are required and what what kind of skills people who are interested in getting into the field may want to learn about. And there's definitely a, a wide variety uh, ranging from the. Wet lab to a more dry lab kind of computer based. There's a downstream processing we touched upon fermentation, making bioreactors. I mean, there's many, many interesting fields and or enabling tech, as you said. All of these different skills will be required to sort of bring about this revolution of synthetic biology, and it, it is happening. But it's probably only going to grow over the, the the next decade. So it seems like you and I are definitely um, very uh, interested and passionate about it. And, and so it's, it's 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 been a great pleasure. Um, to have you on the show today if, if people want to find you online you know maybe reach out or, or just sort of kind of follow uh, what you're up to what's what's sort of the best way for people to to get in touch
1: so right now i just have a linkedin profile i used to have my own website but the world's changed so much we had covid we have the, the globalization i think is changing and and so uh, i just have a linkedin profile but what i may suggest is why don't we go through your website where we're posting this and and have a conversation there and if I'm looking there, we could, I could answer questions or, or stimulate new conversa- threads of conversation.
0: Absolutely. We'll, we'll definitely post it on the website and people can leave comments or reach out to me directly. And then we'll, we'll hopefully uh, keep the conversation going. And, and yeah, it, would be, it was very exciting to have you, Sam. Thanks a lot for coming on the show and hope to talk soon. Likewise.
1: Thank you very much, Flavio.